Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Violence can destroy families. I decided one day that I could not stand having my children witnessing more of the physical, verbal and emotional abuse. While I was facing issues of family violence, I heard about a service available to assist people in my situation called InTouch. I called InTouch and spoke with someone in my language. InTouch gave me the support I needed. Thanks to the people at InTouch, I've been able to rebuild a better life for my family. If you need advice, contact InTouch for a free and confidential discussion in your language by calling 1800 755 988 or search InTouch Multicultural Centre online. InTouch. Brought to you by Victorian Women Lawyers and funded by Victoria Law Foundation. Hi, um, welcome to Queering the Out <laughs> with Jay and T. So in this episode, we'll be talking about radicalization and Islamophobia industry with Aaron Kudnani and Nathan Lin. Yeah. So without further ado, let's get down to it. Yeah, so we've got an interview to play for you. So we are now joined by Aaron Kudnani to discuss about radicalization and radicalization theory. Aaron is the author of The Muslims Are Coming, Islamophobia, Extremism, and The Domestic War and Terror, a powerful critique of U.S. surveillance of Muslims and prosecution of homegrown terrorism. He's also a lecturer at New York University. Previously, he was educated at Cambridge University and holds a PhD from London Metropolitan University. Aaron Kudnani, welcome to our show. Thank you for having me. So um, radicalization is a buzzword we hear a lot in Australia, and fairly recently as well, um, which brings to the question, what is radicalization? Well, you're right that it's it's a, a word that has suddenly become very widely used and is of recent invention. Uh, 20 years ago, no one felt the need to use the word radicalization to talk about terrorism. And really, the word has come about um, following, in particular, um, what started to happen around about 2004, 2005, particularly in Europe. Um, where you started to see um, terrorist attacks take place that were carried out um, by Muslims who were fellow citizens of, of Europe, European countries. They weren't um, coming from the Middle East, um, as, in, as in the case of 9-11. And so um, in Europe, scholars and civil servants and policymakers started to think that um, they needed to have a better understanding of what is the process by which um, someone is turned from an ordinary fellow citizen into someone who's willing to commit acts of mass murder against those fellow citizens. And that is, of course, a um, a, a good question to ask, an important question to ask, um, a valid question. Um, 
the the problem is um, that the way in which that question was framed from the beginning um, uh, ten years or so ago um, included a number of of flawed assumptions. So, firstly, the assumption was that the process by which someone becomes a terrorist is something to do with the Islamic religion, right? right. And and um, uh, so so the question of of what makes uh, a far right wing terrorist a terrorist was never asked in the same way. It was as if that there could be no interest in that question, and that in the case of a far right terrorist, um, the uh, the process was one of of you know someone who's just disaffected. It's an individual story. It's a, it's a a story of a, of a lone wolf. Whereas in the case of the Muslim terrorist, it's a it's a story that is a story that's perceived to be in some way a product of Muslim culture or the Islamic religion in some form or another, right? So it's a, it, that the framing separated out Muslims and, and made it seem like there was some special process involving Islam. And, and the second problem is that the way in which the question was asked about radicalization didn't take into account the fact that um, when you have political violence, um, terrorism is a is a form of political violence, is a mode of political action. When when you have t- um, political violence, it's always a relationship between uh, multiple actors. Um, if you know, right now we're talking about ISIS. ISIS is in a political conflict with a number of states, right? Um, oh. And that's a and that's a violent conflict. Um, but if we want to un- understand the origins of that conflict, we need to look not just at ISIS, but also the state with which it's in conflict, right? And and the same is true, for example, of the acts of violence that were carried out in Europe that that got this discussion of, of radicalization going. For example, the seven seven terrorist attacks in London um, that, that on the London transport system in two thousand and five. Um, you can't really understand that incident and and what caused it and what led up to it um, unless you also take into account the 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 violence that the British government was involved in 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 going uh, along with the war in Iraq. Um, it's not it's not that it's all about foreign policy decisions, but foreign policy decisions are part of this story, a substantial and significant part of this story. So unless you understand that, that, that violence is interactive. It's it's a it's a relationship. Um, you're you're missing out um, a large part of the story. And of course, the the think tanks and the policymakers that were pushing this concept of radicalization deliberately wanted to exclude the question of foreign policy and deliberately wanted to focus all the attention on um, on religion as the only possible explanation for this because that's a convenient story to tell um, at a a time when um, there is mass opposition to the war on terror uh it's so so there were there were you know clear political agendas at play here coming from neoconservatives um on both sides of the atlantic and and in particular in, in the uk where i'm from um this was very much tied up with the tony blair government and his um, attempt to um, 
retain some, sh you know, shred of legitimacy um, after the, the catastrophic decision of his to go along with uh, George W. Bush's war in Iraq. Okay, so perhaps for the for the listeners, um, what is radicalization theory? Well, so so as as I've you know as as I was saying a moment ago that the the, uh, the this period of of around ten years ago uh, when when a number of people wanted to to try and develop this idea of radicalization gave birth to a whole um, body of 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 scholarship and and scholarship that was somewhat bogus, I would argue. So um, some of this was done in in university departments um, often funded by uh, Department of Homeland Security in the United States or by um, the uh, Home Office in the United Kingdom. Um, other uh, scholarship done by neoconservative think tanks on both sides of the Atlantic. Um, but in all cases, what they were trying, you know, what they were trying to do was to come up with a theory that would say um, religious ideology is the root cause of, of what makes someone a terrorist. And we have a model of that process that tells us here are the indicators uh, that someone is going down this process of becoming a terrorist driven by religious ideology, right? And millions, millions of dollars on both sides of the Atlantic have been spent trying to find some kind of evidence to back up this model of radicalization. Of course, the evidence simply isn't there because that's not how someone becomes a terrorist. Um, but nevertheless, um, a kind of consensus emerged in, the, in spite of the lack of evidence um, that these models could work. And so what you end up with is a list of indicators that can be used by law enforcement agencies that say, here are the things to look for that tell you this person who's not yet a terrorist, but is going to be a terrorist in the future. And of course, it turns out that those indicators uh, of, of social radicalization are very, you know, very much um, to do with expressions of religious identity, um, rather than any real relationship to violence or terrorism. Absolutely. And um, the Australian government is launching a new project called Countering Violent Extremism, or CVE. And um, I don't think Australia is alone in this, because this is also being introduced in the United Kingdom and the United States. But does it really stop violence? Well, we had uh, in the United Kingdom in, in 2006, uh, under the Tony Blair government, we had a, the introduction of, of a policy called Preventing Violent Extremism, which which was the first attempt in the world to do something like this. Um, and, and so the the current policy that's being rolled out in the United States over the last year or two um, called countering violent extremism is, is modeled on that original British model from 2006. And the Australian policy that's that's coming out now called countering violent extremism is also modeled on the British model. Um, and what the British model was was trying to do was to say, um, you know, its starting point was to say that there are that there is a problem amongst Muslims in Britain, a cultural and ideological problem that um, 
you know, it's usually captured un- under this word extremism. And, um, and, and the government needs to develop all kinds of interventions, which are usually um, described um, under this, you know, slightly pretentious phrase, soft power, um, right. to, to bring about a cultural change in Muslim communities um, ag- against extremism. How is that to be done? By funding community leaders to promote a so-called anti-extremist message, um, by identifying individuals who are considered to be extremists and engaging them in so-called de-radicalization processes. Now, you know, a number of key points here. One is the idea of extremism is, is different from the idea of terrorism. Terrorism is correctly classified as a criminal offence. Extremism is about the ideas you have and, and is, is really about, um, you know, what you think. So if you're, if you're having a government that is saying, we are going to go after extremists, um, well, you better watch out for, for you know, your, your freedom to dissent in that, in that kind of scenario because, um, you know, calling something extremism is, is, has a long history of um, of closing down dissent, um, you know, in the United States, Martin Luther King was was called an extremist for most for most of his active life. Um, in in British history, the the use of the word extremism to describe political opposition goes back to British colonialism in India. Um, the extremist was the Indian who wanted to be independent from British colonialism. So. Um, you know what we when Muslims in in Britain express dissent, they get called extremists, right? If they are passionately critical of um, the war on terror, if they're passionately opposed to the Iraq war, if they're um, passionate supporters of the Palestinian movement, they are classified as extremists, right? So, um, and 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 up until and so for most of the period in which this preventing violent extremism policy was in place. Um, there was no, you know, by definition, this was not targeting people involved in criminal activity. To use the jargon, this was operating in what was called the pre-criminal space. So by definition, the people being targeted were not committing crime. Yeah. What they were doing was expressing opinions, um, religious or political opinions, that were being classified as unacceptable by the government, right? Um, and so we should be very concerned about um, something that is um, trying to do that, ironically, in the name of so-called British values, which among which freedom of expression is usually listed. And of course, this this kind of approach is is um, from the point of view of preventing violence is uh, it's easy to see how it can be counterproductive because if you if you close down the spaces in which p- people particularly young people, can um, express radical opinions. If you treat those radical opinions not as someone expressing their right to free expression, but as um, a, an indicator that someone might be about to become a terrorist, then you make it hard, you, you make it hard for people who are, who are looking at the world and seeing injustices and want to talk about those things. You make it hard for them to do that. And then the argument of the people who advocate violence becomes all the more compelling. 
because they can then make their pitch more plausibly, which is to say this so-called democratic country doesn't really allow you to bring about change through the democratic process. And so violence is the only way. Hey, you're back live on um, Clearing the Air on 3CR, 855 AM on your AM dial. Um, We're about to go to a song. Taz? Yep, we will. (laughs) Um, Yeah, it's by Loki, Abomination. Okay, awesome. This track is not an attack upon the American people. It's an attack upon the system within which they live. Since 1945, the United States has attempted to overthrow more than 50 foreign governments. In the process, the US has caused the end of life for several million people and condemned many millions more to a life of agony and despair. The strength of your dreaming prevents you from reason. The American dream only makes sense if you're sleeping. It's just a dream. I really don't like this concept of teaching people to see the person and not the disability. Then why can't people see a person with a disability and not freak out or not feel uncomfortable? You know, it's like that weird backhanded compliment that we get when people say, you know, oh, I don't think of you as disabled because you're my friend or you're really cool or because you're just like me. And can we not be all of those things? Can we not be cool and likeable and people's friends but not also be proud of our disabilities? I kind of hope that we can. So Hi, was, you're back on 3CR. <laughs> so that was um, Abomination by Loki, and we'll, be, we'll continue with our interview with Arun Kanani. Right, awesome. So what are the issues with and the consequences of de-radicalization programs? That's something we've, we've heard a lot as well uh, recently. Um, yeah, so, you know, in various, in various countries... Um, Alongside these countering violent extremism programs, you also have these so-called de-radicalization programs that that are often a part of it. Um, In Britain, the Preventing Violent Extremism program included a strand known as Channel, which aimed to um, identify young people who were seen as as radicalizing and then try to de-radicalize them, right? And... So what that meant in practice was that all kinds of public sector professionals uh, who are not police officers, so people like teachers, youth workers, doctors, um, were given training in the so-called indicators of radicalization and asked to be the ears and eyes of the counter-terrorist system and identify young people overwhelming majority of whom were Muslim, you know, identify those young people as, as, as suspected of being radical, radicalizing. And then there would be some kind of intervention um, designed to, um, to end the, the supposed process of radicalization. And again, because what is being talked about here is not criminal activity, these people could not be prosecuted for any crimes. So the, the, the intervention that follows is also not a criminal justice system intervention. It's things like um, uh, ha- having that person meet once a week with a police officer who tries to persuade them of the error of their ideology or 
uh, a religious um, scholar uh, or instructor of some kind tries to engage in a theological discussion with that person to say that their interpretation of Islam is the wrong one. Um, or um, maybe a youth worker tries to identify any emotional problems that the young person has that might be perceived to lie behind um, their supposed radicalization. So um, you have this situation where um, in some cases, um, young people who have real um, needs because they're suffering from maybe addiction or they're suffering bereavement or some other kind of problem like that actually do get some kind of help with those problems um, but um, but but in in other cases this looks very Orwellian in the sense that you have a government sponsoring people to enter people's lives and and try to um, tell them that, that their ideology is wrong um, and and the most worrying part of this is that the um, as part of this process, a, a huge investigation is carried out into someone's life. So and remember, most of the people nowadays who, who are being de-radicalized in the UK are teenagers, right? They're right. 15 year old kids who, who've, um, you know, who've been identified as, as a risk by their by their school or, or youth worker. So um, the so in those situations, you know, the everyone in the in that teenager's family is going to be interviewed by the police, the aunts, the uncles, the the teachers, the social worker, the doctor, um, the friends. All of those people are going to be interviewed to try and build up, you know, a very detailed file on this person's life and every activity that they've been involved in, religious expression, political opinions. Um, and this file is obviously available to the intelligence agencies as part of their general surveillance. Um, and, and all of this takes place without any real suspicion of any kind that this person is um, involved in or about to be involved in, in criminal activity. Right? Obviously, where someone's suspected of being in some kind of criminal activity, there's a legitimate ground for investigating that. This, but this is by definition not investigating crime so much as investigating ideology. Okay, so um, Arun, could you tell us, um, is there, um, are there people who are more likely or vulnerable to becoming radicalized? Like, and who are they? Well, um, you know, I think the, the term radicalized is um, probably not helpful here. I mean, I think the uh, the lesson of, of the way in which this term radicalization has been circulated over the last decade or so is that it doesn't really help us to understand what causes violence. We want to we want to reduce violence in the world. Um, the term radicalization doesn't really help us to do that because it it because of the flawed assumptions that I spoke about earlier okay. that, that seem to be embedded into that concept. So what we should be the real question we should be asking is how do we reduce violence in the world right um and and where we have this problem of um of, of individuals 
um, in Australia or, U- or the UK or the US, a small, a small number of, of individuals who seem to be attracted to um, violent organizations um, of, of various kinds, one of which, one of which currently is ISIS. Um, how, do we, how do we intervene to, pro- to make that less likely to happen, right? That's a valid question. And the answer, I mean, I think the answer is, is um, on a number of levels. One, one answer is um, that we, if we want to condemn without hypocrisy the violence of a group like ISIS um, for the way in which it kills civilians, um, for its sectarian violence, then if we're going to do that without hypocrisy, we also have to condemn the the violence of our own governments when they kill civilians and the and the racism of our own governments. Uh, so it's it's um, and this you know this is something that I think most most of the um, you know Ma- Martin Luther King un- was someone who understood this. I, th- I think Martin Luther King is one of the one of the great resources here for thinking about questions of, of violence um, that's that's still relevant today. And he he often said um, that you know you, you can't preach you can't preach non-violence at home while preaching violence abroad. And he was saying that in the context of the Vietnam War, but mm. we should be saying that today in the context of the war on terror. Um, so um, that's the first thing, and and, ob- and obviously. Um, part of what we're dealing with when we're dealing with a group like ISIS is a, a legacy of, um, of, of foreign policy failures from the past, in particular the Iraq war. So, um, but, but then apart from the foreign policy issue, we can also talk about the factors that um, are present for young people um, domestically. So, you know, to some extent, um, some of these individuals are suffering from mental health problems, and so, to the extent that we, that we provide decent mental health services for young people, we will be doing something to address these problems. Um, to, uh, but uh, and more more generally, I think you know, the one thing that we can be doing is is trying to create culture and a space for young people in which the expression of radical opinions is not seen as dangerous and threatening and and attracts suspicion, but is seen as um, a healthy and desirable thing to happen in in a democracy. So in that sense, radicalization is the solution, not the problem. Having people express radical criticisms is, is precisely what we should want uh, as, as an alternative to violence. Absolutely. Um, so lastly, Arun, um, what are your thoughts on the radicalization of the right and their sense of entitlement to be able to report on supposedly Muslim issues? If we're going to use this word radicalization, then it's absolutely right that we, you know, that we ask about not just the radicalization of Muslims, but the radicalization of um other groups in society as well. You know, if, if radicalization is the willingness is to do with the willingness to use violence to solve political issues, then we should ask why over the last um, 15 years 
the the willingness of the US government and the UK government um, and the Australian government to use violence to solve political problems, why that has increased as well. That's also a kind of radicalization, right? Um, and and obviously part of the story there is the story of neoconservatives influencing policy um, in the first few years after 9-11. And then um, the, that, that kind of approach to um, foreign policy becoming normalized under um, more recent governments, uh, particularly under the Obama administration. You know, if, if the neoconservatives um, invented the war on terror, then then Obama has made it normal, made it the standard foreign policy stance of the United States and um, and and absorbed liberals as supporters of it so that it's now a consensus across the political spectrum rather than just being a conservative project. I mean, I think I think that as far as the question of, of conservatives reporting on um, on these issues, I mean, I, I think the issue here is is not that they're right to report on these issues, but the um, the question of knowledge here. Right. So so the um, we have a we have a basic problem in in the way in which Muslims are spoken about in the West, right, which is that there is there is a there is a a basic framework that Muslims have to fit into in order for their voice to be heard. And that framework is is one that um, is not in their interests as as people who are trying to engage in a in a defense of their rights in these societies. So um, what I mean by that is essentially the framework is one in which the question, the only question that anyone is interested in is, are you an extremist or are you a Muslim? <laughs> right. So so um, if you if you say um, that you that your community is facing a civil rights issue. Right. No one hears that as you are raising a legitimate issue as a citizen of this democratic process everyone hears that as oh you're an extremist because you're trying to conduct um some kind of stealth jihad some <laughs> kind of lawfare you know using the, the democratic process to advance a, 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 an islamic extremist agenda right so so um taking a position that would that would um for for almost any other group be considered just a, a normal part of the public discourse of a democratic society for Muslims becomes uh, an indicator of suspicion. Right. Um, so so there's a way in which Muslims cannot really speak authentically um, and be heard. Um, and that's I think that's the kind of fundamental issue here. Right. And, and there's a there's a kind of a trap. Um, that's set for Muslims, which is, um, you you know, the, the, the pressure to prove that you're a moderate and not an extremist, right? So, um, you know, don't say that religion has any um, legitimacy as a public discourse. Keep religion in the private sphere. That way you prove that you're moderate. Except that um, as soon as um, something like ISIS carries out um, some kind of act of brutality, the, you know, the rules are changed again, and you're expected to say that Islam condemns this, 
right? So suddenly religion has to be in the public sphere, right? So you can't win either way. Um, you're supposed to condemn the use of violence for political ends to prove that you're a moderate Muslim. And yet um, you're not supposed to criticize the government for using violence <laughs> for political ends, right? So you're, you know, you're supposed to be this kind of liberal, rational, autonomous individual who has no, um, who doesn't have a kind of collective belonging to any community. You're just meant to be an individual, good liberal. But then um, you're also meant to have this deep, unquestioning loyalty to the nation, right? Which is another, which is a collective that you are supposed to be loyal to. So again, are you meant to be an individual or are you meant to? Have loyalty to some broader community. Well, that it, it what it, it you can't win, right? Because it's there's no consistent principle that you're allowed to uphold. So this is the the trap: is that um, being uh, being be, having to prove constantly that you're a moderate Muslim means that you're always going to be suspected as an extremist, right? And the problem is that that basic framework um, needs to be challenged and unchallenged. All right. Um... Absolutely um, agree. So um, thank you, Arun Kunani, once again for your time. Uh, I think this conversation is definitely much needed, especially with growing Islamophobic sentiment in Australia. Well, thank you very much for having me. Very years that they figure like this, like this, like that. Now listen here. Before I disappear, if apocalypse is near, never fear. Laku laku with the spear, girl, I got you with the beer. So cheers to my folks, so oh, my chariot is here. Gotta go, gotta go, got a whole lot of poems in my scroll to mama bust. I turn them into gold, like Nanny with the gloves or Midas with the touch. So that was um, New People, the Empire Remix by uh, Blues Colors. And we'll continue with our second part of the show, which is an interview with Nathan Lane, the author of The Islamophobia Industry. We are joined by Nathan Lane to discuss about the Islamophobia industry. Nathan Lane is a writer and scholar of the Middle East. He holds a master's degree in international studies with a Middle Eastern focus from East Carolina University and a master's in arts of arts in Arab studies, um, specifically in Arab po politics from Georgetown University. He's the author of four books, including the award-winning The Islamophobia Industry. His work has been featured in the Los Angeles Times, The Washington Post, The New York Daily News, CNN, Salon, and Christian Science Monitor. Uh, Nathan Lane, welcome to our show. Perhaps to start off with, um, what is Islamophobia and like, how would you attempt to define it? Great. Um, well, it's, it's a very good question. I think it's probably best to start uh, by talking about what Islamophobia is not. Um, because there often seems to be um, some confusion um, about that. It, it, Islamophobia is not um, the dislike of Islam. Um, it's not simply the sum of its etymological parts, so the fear of Islam. It's not criticism of the religion's various tenets, and it's certainly not criticism of particular acts of violence or immoral behavior um, on the part of some Muslims. Rather, um, what we're talking about here when we talk about Islamophobia is biased views of an entire group of religious people, so views that are most often shaped by a few different things, generalization, 
So one Muslim does something bad, therefore all Muslims must be bad. Uh, reductionism, which is reducing um, Islam's diversity um, to one or two extreme examples. So hand chopping in Saudi Arabia or stoning in Iran or, or two instances. Um, and misattribution. So that is, a Muslim does uh, a bad thing, thus they must have done that bad thing because they are a Muslim. Um, so that, that really, I think, gets it part of here. Now, as for a definition, um, Islamophobia, I would say, is prejudice towards or discrimination against Muslims um, on the basis of their religious identity um, or their perceived uh, religious identity. Um, and, you know, it, it, has a, it has a long history, and, um, you know, we can talk about that later perhaps, but like anti-Semitism, um, like um, homophobia, like racism, when we talk about Islam, we're talking about mentalities and actions that demean an entire people. Okay, so what is the Islamophobia industry? So the Islamophobia industry um, is a small uh, but tight-knit network of people and groups in the United States. They have pinnacles in Europe, uh, too, um, but that emerged in the uh, years after 9-11. So they're well-connected, they're well-funded, uh, they're interconnected, I should say, and, and they spread out across the country. So they've been successful in, in, in really transforming um, recently um, online antipathy towards Muslims and Islam into on-the-ground activism that seeks at um, one level or another to sort of institutionalize Islam. So we see this in, for instance, mosque opposition campaigns. We see this in advertisements for public transportation. Uh, we see this in um, various efforts to advance anti-Sharia uh, legislation, which has passed in 10 states here in the United States and been considered um, in more than half of all states in the United States, um, and, and that engage also in various uh, forms of, of activism and demonstration, uh, uh, including things like the draw comic cartoon contests, which maybe uh, your listeners have heard about, um, contests. And uh, at, uh, Garland, Texas, that it, the contest attracted even armed um, citizens and protesters. Um, so, you know, there are various nodes of this industry. Um, as I mentioned, they're well connected, um, but they're also fairly well connected to the political world. Um, and a few of them have attracted 2016 presidential candidates, uh, believe it or not, to their events. Um, additionally, we see, too, that there's a religious dimension that is nurtured sort of an odd, but not unsurprising, between um, evangelicals and, and we're now learning more about the Catholic connection and, and self-described Zionists, whose views of um, Muslims and Islam are often uh, refracted really through the lens of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. So that's just sort of a, a general um, uh, Okay, so there is this website called islamophobianetwork.com, um, and the website has a map of how different people and institutions work and operate together um, with a specific focus on the United States. Um, do you think that's a reasonable uh, presentation of how the industry works? Yeah, yeah, absolutely it, it is. Um, that, as I believe, was put together by the Center for American Progress, which authored the report Fear, Inc., and so a lot of the material that's on that website was discussed in that report. But what I think that website... Um, does very nicely is it, it offers the public a, a, a way to visualize the various nodes in this network. 
and, and see quite clearly the lines of connection that exist between them. Um, but it also offers um, a snapshot of their funding, which I think um, further clarifies for the public um, the kind of nefarious nature of a lot of these individuals and the degree to which their animosity towards Islam and Muslims has become quite prominent. Absolutely. So um, what are the origins of Islamophobia and the history behind it? Um, so it, it, we go back in time quite a bit here uh, to the beginning of the, really, the first decade of the, of the 20th century. The word Islamophobia and, and the phenomenon, too, are, they're, they're not new. The word we know was first used um, in uh, 1910, um, and it was used by French writers who were describing the experience of West Africans under um, French colonial rule, and, mm. and they used the word in a way that, that described um, prejudice towards Muslims. So it was even in its first, um, in a way that, that got at uh, a form of prejudice. But I think in a more contemporary framework, um, we can understand it as really sort of a cousin or a distant relative of other earlier prejudices in um, our nation's history here in the United States, but also um, just world history. Um, it really... Um, I think grew out of anti-Arab sentiment that was quite rampant during the early 1970s as a result of the the oil crisis and the decision on the part of Iran to nationalize its oil market. Um, But then, of course, just a few years later with the hostage crisis and the Iranian revolution, um, America's attention was cast again to that region of the world, the Middle East. And so, of course, the common denominator between um, Arab oil sheikhs, Iranian politicians, and then with the revolution, Iranian um, religious leaders was Islam. And so, you know, we read the Cold War began to kind of wane. Um, we began to talk about this new threat that faced the West in expressly religious um, terms. So, you know, with the green menace, green, of course, referring to the, the color that's often associated with Islam, uh, rightly or wrongly. Um, Muslim monster, the Islamic nemesis, the Islamic threat. And so from there, what happened was Washington really began on the Middle East and Muslim majority countries as a region um, that was particularly threatening to U.S. national interests and national security. And then from that point forward, um, we know that the military's movement there became more and more entrenched. So Absolutely. Just to give you an example, since 1980, the United States has invaded, bombed, or occupied um, some 14 uh, Muslim majority countries, and and you know what results from that, of course, um, are are images and narratives that um, contribute to Islamophobic discourses that thrive today. Um, so Nathan, who does Islamophobia benefit? <laughs> it benefits, I, I I think, really um, two particular groups of of people: um, the government, uh, number one, um, maybe. Not in, in the pronounced sort of obvious way, but but in um, in, in kind of a, 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 a different way. The government relies on public support to advance its particular aims in Muslim majority countries, right? And so support for those aims is more easily won when you have large portions of the public that agree with the ideological premises that underpin those missions. Um, so whether it's you know. Um, um, responding to um, ISIS, or whether it's invading Iraq, or whether it is responding to the attacks of 9/11 and 
and launching you know the war on terror um, out of those things we see um, Islamophobic narratives and images and discourses emerge and so when the public can tap into those things it makes the job of the government um, much easier in terms of justifying and carrying out policies that create sort of a um, an inescapable sort of circle. Um, but the other group, obviously, that, that benefits from Islamophobia is the Islamophobia industry. So those people who um, profit from essentially whipping up fervor among the general public. And we know uh, if we look at um, data from the Council on American Islamic Relations um, is one example that um, – Nearly $120 million went to 37 different groups between 2008 and 2011. And I can tell you that new figures um, from uh, CARE place that number now upwards of $200 million. Yeah. So, you know, we're talking about tens and tens and tens of millions, in this case, hundreds of millions of dollars mm -hmm. that is pumped into um, various um, organizations and groups um, that benefit uh, from um, anti-Muslim prejudice. So what can be done to counter or fight back against Islamophobia? Three things. Uh, the first, uh, cultivate relationships with Muslims, with your Muslim neighbors, with your Muslim classmates, with your Muslim co-workers. Um, relationships, I think, are, are, are more important even than good information. Um, it's difficult to hate someone when you, when you get to know them and you've established um, a relationship. But also those relationships provide us opportunities to ask tough questions and to interact and to know one another beyond the headlines, beyond the sensational um, sound bites that we hear on the radio or see on our television um, screens or read you know, on social media. So that's the first thing. The second thing I think is that there's, uh, there has to be an effort made to uh, learn how to decipher good information from bad information. You know, Taz, the Internet is, is a breeding ground for Islamophobia. Um, I think that's probably an understatement. Um, but that is because for too many people, it is difficult to discern what is reliable online from what is unreliable. And so what you have is you have um, an enormous amount of information being pumped out online, uh, being you know, spread across social media, commenting on Islam or Muslims in one way or another, and for the ordinary Joe who logs online after work and is interested perhaps in learning something more, um, it, it, it creates a challenge. Um, when you go to sites like Jihad Watch, run by Robert Spencer, or sites like Atlas Shrugs, run by Pamela Geller, and you see this barrage of negative information from individuals who claim to speak from some position of authority, it's difficult then to decide what is, what is right and what is wrong. So there needs to be an effort to, made to decipher that good information from bad information. The other thing that I think can help is ordinary people must come to a place where they feel comfortable and indeed where they feel like it's their responsibility to speak out any time and every time they witness an act of prejudice targeting uh, Muslims. So when more people raise their voices, when um, a woman is harassed, um, a, a woman who wears the hijab is harassed on a train, and, and a man speaks up and says, no, I'm not going to tolerate that. You can't call her that name. You can't treat her that way. This is wrong. When more citizens, ordinary citizens, non-Muslim citizens, express their belief that Islamophobia is not okay, what that does is it marginalizes the people who think that it is okay. 
it stigmatizes them, as, and, 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 it, and it should, and it sends a, a strong and clear message that their brand of discrimination will not be tolerated and that it is, in fact, outside the bounds of acceptable behavior in, um, in our societies. So, um, Nathan Lane, do you think that the Islamophobia industry um, would change uh, in the future, let's say in, this, in the next 50 years, what, and what would it look like? It's hard to forecast. Um, I, I hope that they will be non-existent, but but I don't think that that's likely. Um, but you know, I think a good model to look at, though, is is the Catholic experience. Um, we can reflect on that and, and and gain a lot of understanding about about this kind of forward nature of of of, of you know or, or, or the progress that can be made on on um, this front. So I'm not, you know I'm, I'm not sure that there was the same degree of of moneyed influence there. Uh, but there certainly were quarters of the population um, here in the United States that advanced similar narratives about that religious group. And, you know, so if we go back only to 1960, we see that this was very much present during the election of John Kennedy. Um, there were um, very boisterous voices that proclaimed that should John Kennedy be elected to the presidency, that um, the Pope would essentially be in charge uh, of the government. And John Kennedy went to great lengths to reassure the various factions of the American public um, that that was not the case uh, and that he would, in fact, be you know, a loyal president and would um, you know, value the integrity and the authority of the Constitution. But so if you fast forward just 50 years from that, we've largely overcome that. Now, that doesn't mean that there's not hostility in some spaces towards Catholics. There certainly is. But we've at least arrived, I think, at a point where Catholics are generally accepted as 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 part of, um, you know, the the religious the, the diverse religious um, uh, you know American community. Uh, Muslims are are not yet there, um, but but you know they can get there. I think with a little bit of work. So, um, could you tell us more about the bridge in, bridge in, initiative at Georgetown University? Yeah, absolutely. So the bridge initiative is a multi-year research project that is housed in the Center for Muslim Christian Understanding at Georgetown that connects information on the phenomenon of Islamophobia to the general public. And so we do that primarily through our website, which I'd encourage your listeners to, to, um, to visit, which is bridge.georgetown.edu. That's our primary vehicle for disseminating information. But we also have an active social media presence. So we're on Twitter, at bridgeinit, B-R-I-D-G-E-I-N-I-T, mm-hmm. if you don't mind me plugging our, our brand a little bit. <laughs> but also we're on Facebook, um, facebook.com slash G-U bridge in it. And so what we aim to do is really offer engaging, counterintuitive, well-researched narratives that do a couple of things. They dissect public discourses on Islam. Um, they comment on and sort of uncover the operational mechanisms of Islamophobia, so the industry, but also um, take things a step further and provide them in Islam in the way in which they should be presented, which is that they're ordinary um, and important uh, parts of American, European, Australian um, societies um, that contribute um, and that should be respected and valued um, by all people who value a world uh, that is characterized by religious diversity and pluralism. And so ultimately the goal of our work here is to raise public awareness um, and enrich public discourses on this particular um, form of prejudice. All right. I suppose, lastly, um, for our listeners, um, could you perhaps briefly detail um, what your book, The Islamophobia Industry, covers? Yeah, I'd be glad to. So it covers a lot of what we've already discussed, uh, though in 
substantially more detail. Um, it, it really offers um, a glimpse into the lives and work of some of the people that are part of this network. So I, I, what I aimed to do was to show how and why they do what they do. Um, and I trace a lot of different things, but, I, but really I trace the network from the kind of bowels of the Internet, as it were, um, to the halls of you know, Washington, D.C. officialdom, to um, the occupied territories, believe it or not, to the pulpit of evangelical preachers, and, and even overseas, where I look at some of the ways in which European outfits um, and organizations and individuals in Europe have consumed and actively participated in um, this effort to stereotype Muslims. Really, what the book um, did was was show the relationship uh, relationships that exist between these individuals and groups. I commented a little bit on uh, the financial um, angle, but but not not as much. Um, the purpose of the book was kind of to look at the groups that were um, pumping out a lot of this venom into American and European societies and and show the various ways in which they were connected. Oh, fantastic. Um, Nathan Lean, thank you so much for your time. Uh, I think this conversation is definitely much needed, um, especially in Australia where we've got increasing levels of um, Islamophobia. Yes, well, thank you so much for having me, and thanks to your listeners. It was a real pleasure. So that was um, the interview with Nathan Lean, the author of The Islamophobia Industry. Yeah, um, so we're just going to quickly plug some events. Um, or the one event. So there's a counter-protest, no to racism, no to fascism, on Sunday the 22nd November 2015. It's from 11am to 3pm. The address is City of Melton, 232 High Street, Melton, Victoria, 23337. It's an important cause to get along to, especially, I guess, with what's been happening, well, with, well, with what happened at 3CR the other day too, I guess. So, yeah, um, thanks for listening to Coring the Air. Thanks for all the interviews. No problem. Tea. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, so, see you next time. Bye. Bye. Panoply, Panorama, Panpipe, Pansy, Aha, Pansexual, Knowing No Boundaries of Sex or Gender. Sound interesting? Then join Sally on Sundays at noon.